on account of a rather unique and fascinating disturbance that can be last night while in the midst of discoursing on potain. I was going to give you a recap of what I came across about the seeds because I didn't actually spend much time talking about, well, the seeds, which was the initial purpose of the mission. Now, as I mentioned, my friend, uh, living in Washington, Oregon, uh, acting as a caregiver for a medicinal patient. And what that means is the, the laws in the states have gone by a state-by-state state kind of an ad hoc manner. There's no consistent law, and all the laws are trumped by the federal law because it's not officially in, in the Constitution a right that the federal government has assigned to the states. Although, depending on how you read the Constitution, that may be different. Same argument with the recent Supreme Court ruling where uh, states can't refuse shipments of wine from other states as long as the ID stuff was tended to. And it really put the conservatives in a bit of a spin because conservatives traditionally are uh, proponents of state rights and also proponents of free commerce. So it put people in a little bit of conundrum. And as it were, states like Michigan, who didn't allow wine coming in from California without first going through a middleman broker, which smells a little bit fishy. Uh, now those consumers in those states can buy wine and beer and stuff like that. But every state, as you know, anyone who travels around the U.S. has radically different liquor laws as to where you can buy beer and wine. Is it privatized? Is it public? Are they, and when I say public, state-owned, uh, are, are the hours reasonable at all? Like in Washington State, you can buy beer at the grocery stores and the 7-Elevens. And I'd say, of course, except in Canada, you can't. Uh, but on account of that, uh, in contrast to that, the state liquor stores are these little, uh, uh, well, you know, they're just like, like a little old-timey shop in a strip mall with the nice little shelves with the bottles stacked up. And it's not a very efficient process. They just pass a law where they could be open on Sundays. But anyway, what I'm doing here is drawing a little comparison about the state-by-state -state nature of liquor laws and the state-by-state -state nature of cannabis laws, particularly medical cannabis. So, as it is with the feds, in both the cases of industrial hemp and medical marijuana, they've uh, pulled their trump card and said, even though it's legal at this level, it's not legal at the federal level. And various states have passed industrial hemp and, uh, ooh, nice old Canucks flag there. Uh, by the way, I'm walking from my house in North Shore down to Lonsdale to run a few errands, get a coffee and such that. But anywho, state-by-state uh, -state basis, industrial hemp, medical marijuana laws. The feds come out and say, no, you can't do this. Because like in the case when Canada legalized the growing of industrial commercial hemp products, uh, and they weren't allowed to bring them into the country because the DEA came in and said, hey, any leaf, any seed, anything that we can find that's not just industrial matter means that the whole load that you're hauling here, and it might be a whole semi-truck trailer full of you know, raw fiber uh, is illegal, illicit, Schedule 1 controlled substance. And you tell me why cannabis can even, in this day and age of fascism in the U.S., even be considered to be on the same schedule of controlled drugs as heroin, methamphetamine, something, other things with no, uh, what they call medical use. So, cannabis has clearly been brewed. Medical use. So anyway, there I am, Vancouver, seeds. Because these people in Washington, while it's legal at one level, 
it's not legal at another level. They can't get the seeds to grow. They have to get the the stuff to make the stuff illegally. Now, and a caregiver is, under the Washington state law, it allows, um, once someone has a doctor's recommendation, because if you get a doctor's prescription, then the doctors are shut down by the, what do they call them, the FDA? They get their FDA permits revoked, so they can't write prescriptions. So effectively, as doctors, they're out of business. So doctors give what's called a recommendation. And in the state of Washington, there's like three doctors who do this, and it's this big conundrum. And it's gotten to the point where people set up medical marijuana clinics. And so here, I haven't visited this firsthand. But basically, you go in there and pay 200 bucks, and you go out with a, with a recommendation, right, which is a little bit chessy. But uh, there's another organization, the Green Cross. There's a retired pathologist in Olympia who's uh, been involved. And then there's apparently a doctor in Chehalis, Centralia, that gives uh, recommendations. And... But anyway, you get this recommendation, and then a caregiver because the people who are ostensibly receiving the medical marijuana aren't healthy enough to tend to the crop. Because growing weed is no easy task. Let's get that straight. That's one of the reasons aside, um, that I don't grow weed, because it's hard, right? It's, uh, there's a lot of stuff to remember. It's like there's electricity and chemistry and testing and timing and all these things that I hate. I'm always on the go, so it's really hard to run a garden too when you're gone for two weeks here, three months there, and when you're uh, perennially distracted as I am. But let's get that out of the way. Growing weed is hard, especially growing good weed. Anyone can throw, and I'm sure many of you folks have done this, just throwing a couple seeds in a closet or a little chamber in your house and put some fluorescence on, and they get growing up all spindly, and you're like, wow, it's growing fast. And then you go, oh, shit, how do we make them bud and all that? And one of these shows, I'll talk all about the growing process because I know how to do it. It's just I don't do it, right? So we'll talk about a couple different methods. And, you know, really, there's, for as many different growers, that's how many different methods there are. There's a million ways to do it. So uh, my friend needs some seeds. And for those of you who don't, maybe don't smoke a lot of weed, um, it's important to understand that even the varieties of, of, of weed are much like the varieties of wine. There's a vast spectrum of various effects and subtleties of flavor and buzz that you get from uh, different kinds of weed, right? Now, you could kind of divide the weed, the cannabis family, into three big piles. There's the sativa, cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, and cannabis ruderalis. Now, ruderalis you don't see uh, much. It's not often commercially grown for token use, although the advantage that ruderalis has is my understanding. I don't have first-hand experience growing it, but it survives well in wet and low-light climates. So if you had um, a back 40 on the west coast of, a, of an island and you were just looking to throw something in there, well, that might be a, a good crop to put in. But at the same time, you've got to be really careful of anything you're planting these days because seeds are so damn expensive. Most people grow their plants from cuttings. They clone them, right? You get a mother plant. This one's great. We love it. And you start cloning it off, putting in a root gel, and growing up the new fresh plants. But uh, as a result, the plants are never seeding, right? And so you need specific seed breeders who are maintaining those genetics and stabilizing the genetics. So when you order a seed, when you buy a seed and plant it, and you spend four months nurturing and tending this thing, the finished product is going to be, well, it's going to be high quality, right? And also, not only high quality, you want to know what it is that you're growing. So that leads us to the other two big families of the cannabis plant, and that is indica and sativa. 
And a lot of the weed that you smoke has characteristics of both, right? But to compare them at their most different, sativas are a, a taller, spindly plant that doesn't dense up and flush out as well as the indica. So from a plant, uh, from your growing time investment, you're not getting as big of a yield. From a smoking standpoint, I love the sativas because they're bright and lime and have that fresh taste and almost like a little bit of an astringent taste sometimes or like having a, a nice uh, heavy thick glass of limeade on a cool summer day or a Jägermeister on a, on a warm day or so, it's just the taste of sativa and way it coats your mouth and then afterwards I'm more in a mind to like I'm going for a walk I'm going for a hike I'm going to <laughs> talk crazy talk into a recording machine or whatever, right? Um, and some examples of these would include the Hayes family and, uh, uh, well, the list goes on. A Morning Glory from Barney's that I like so much. The Super Cali Mist. The Super Silver, the Silver Haze. The, uh, and a lot of these kinds came from the Netherlands because they had the more flexibility to grow discreetly because, like I said, sativa is a little harder to grow. The other sister over there is Indica. And Indicas, well, as the name might suggest, came more from the, uh, the Indo-Asia region and uh, where they were traditionally growers of hash. And uh, indica plants are much more resinous, right? Bushier, easier to grow and fill out. You know, they're good huskier, solider, more solid plants. But the stone tends to be uh, a little bit more like I want to kick it on the couch and zone out here and maybe have a slice of pizza. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But that's great. And especially for like nighttime, if you have a hard time sleeping, you want something that's more that way, perhaps. But uh, therein lies the two big differences. The growing methods themselves, well, sativas tend to take a little bit longer. Some of the indicas, people grow them short and bushy, and they really look more like little shrubs. When you know, go into a grow show with sativas, it's more like a bunch of Christmas trees uh, going into a Christmas tree lot, although stuffed into one uh, one bedroom or basement or whatever. What I would really like to see, though, my big dream is I would like to see everyone having six little ones and six big ones going in their house at all the time, or ten little ones and six big ones. But, you know, if everyone's growing 20 plants or less, which you can do in a small amount of space, then it's going to take the whole trafficking and dealing and put more of that onus on everyone excited about what they're growing and understanding the craft more the same way people uh, oh we're back on the busy street here talk about oh remember that fantastic bottled 1963 Merlot uh, people should be talking the same way about weed like that and well a lot of people do certainly when I was at the Cannabis Cup in 2002 in Amsterdam I took my judging responsibilities very seriously and documented over 29 varieties and you know not only did I try them at the coffee shop... Oh, hold on. Not only did I try each variety at the coffee shop, and which it was obtained, but then uh, with my colleague Cosmo, we went back to the hotel and smoked each one from uh, a bong, too. The same bong. So we knew we had sort of this level playing field for them all. And certainly, even an unsophisticated palate can tell the difference between some of the kinds... And certainly the sophisticated palate can really discern what was the, really the high-end, super tasty. And you've got to really respect the work that these seed breeders put into doing this. Of course, the commercial aspect of it is what drives it, it seems, now. But 
let's not forget there's a lot of people out there who breed seeds because they love smoking weed and they love trying it out and they love seeing how it turns out. Commercially, seeds aren't cheap, right? When I was shopping around yesterday, you buy them in a 10 or 12 pack and prices would range from $90 maybe for 10 or 12 up to about just shy of 300 probably. The big reason for that, of course, is, uh, well, it's supply and demand. You learned this in economics class, right? There's a big demand for them, and people want them all over the world. And there's a fairly limited supply because there's only a few countries that people are really able to grow and produce the seeds. But even in those places, they do it at significant risk. All right, I'm going to cross here and hope I don't get killed. So that means the two big centers for seed production are the west coast of Canada and the Netherlands. As far as the markets go, though, uh, England and the U.S. are big markets for, uh, for the sales, right? And so you, then you get these cross-border paranoia fiascos like we've been seeing with the U.S. encroaching on Canada's sovereignty with the arrest of Emery and his cohorts. You know, you get these kind of shenanigans where people are crossing the border because they, we need to go in and mess things up in your country because it's affecting our country. Uh, and how is it affecting your country? And, and do we come in and invade you for every time you're doing something policy-wise that's affecting us? So, but uh, that being said, you get uh, a lot of concern on the part of the vendors and uh, hindrance to commerce when something is illegal in another place. So what happens is um, some people are foolish enough to take the risk of carrying it across the border. And you may think, oh, it's just a bunch of little seeds. Who will uh, ever find them? They'll never search that close. I tell you what, folks, if you've ever been searched at the U.S. Customs, you'll find that they're extremely, extremely thorough, right? Uh, you go back to your car and it is taken apart, right? And at the border crossings now, it's set up like where it looks like a jiffy lube now, right? Where it's, uh, they can, they got torches and they can put it, jack up your car, they can cut it apart. They've got uh, x-rays and infrared analysis done before you're even up to the booth. So... Uh, you think, well, that's not going to pick up seeds or whatever. It's really not worth the risk. You're much better off spending your money on the seeds, splitting them up into two, and throwing them in the mail. Now, I didn't officially just say that, right? Because there's some significant risks, and it's illegal to do this, right? Any viable cannabis seed coming into the U.S. is illegal. So, that being said, mail's definitely better than taking on your person. But the best thing to do is, when you get your seeds, don't kill all your males. Move the males away and start breeding some seeds and see what you come up with. Now, one of the ones that looked really interesting to me that I came across yesterday is uh, the, well, it's, it's, it's a G13 crossed with hash plant. And hash plant is a, well, as you might expect, it's a hashy, resinous, heavy-duty kind of knock out where the G13 is a happy-happy. So, and they're two of really my favorites. So I was excited to see that as a, um, available as a, as a hybrid, as it were. Now, who was it selling it? You know, there's all there's a lot of marketing because of the commercial aspect. There's a tremendous amount of marketing for the top seed breeders, and that leads to a lot of competitiveness at the Cannabis Cup. And they also all have glossy, slick catalogs with flowery descriptions and extended discourse uh, with growing tips and pictures, and the whole thing is all very nice. And they give them all cute names and everything. But the G13 cross with hash plant was marketed as Mr. Nice, named after Howard Marks, who was a, a cannabis smuggler in the 70s, and he got shook down, spent some time in jail, and came out and wrote a book about it. 
and he sent me a package of stuff. He makes music, makes some music or spoken word CDs and all kinds of stuff. But he's a big smiling, uh, fun loving guy. It seems I really don't know much about him beyond that. But I noticed the seed company was naming it after him. Some of the seed companies are based in London, where they're getting seeds. I imagine bringing them across from the Netherlands and then shipping them out from the UK. Because you can imagine any package coming to the US from the Netherlands. Yeah, it might look a little sketchy, right? Especially when it's addressed to, like, uh, Bob Q. Spacely or something, you know? So, uh, um, UK seed catalogs. Now, there's the BC breeders as well. And, of course, there's there's at least as many companies in BC now as there is in, in Amsterdam. And the companies themselves kind of get cross-pollinated because employees... You know, people go into business and say, Oh, yeah, bro, we'll be business partners. We'll split it all. It's all good. And then six months, two years later, they realize that spending all the time together in entrepreneurial context isn't as fun as hanging out on the couch playing video games. And there starts to be disagreements um, in who owns the intellectual property, so to speak, of growing these different strains. And when I was looking at the, for the uh, Super Silver Haze, um, oh, the Super Cali Mist, sorry, which is a mix of the Cali Mist and the Super Silver Haze, um, uh, I was some, which was made by the greenhouse. I had the, the greenhouse, and it won second place, third place, maybe at the Cannabis Cup O2. And the one of the guys, I went to three different seed shops yesterday, told me that an employee had left and taken that with them and gone over to this other company and all this. And I, you know, I really don't uh, care for for that whole uh, shenanigans. I think business always needs to be on the up and up. And I really think that these seeds need to be, <clears throat> as they say in the tech world, open sourced. Let people spread the genetics around. It's going to be going to be good for everyone in the long run. And people who really believe in spreading the herb around and getting it out to the people and that herb can change the world. Oh, yes, that's a lofty statement. Well, rather than focus on the commercial sector, we need to move back to the love. And we need to move back to the small-scale grow operation. It shouldn't have to be about burying a shipping container underground with, you know, deer traps and buying 400 acres and trekking stuff and backpacks across the border. We need to dedicate ourselves to empowering everyone to grow their own. And that's really what sparked things, <laughs> sparked things, took things over the top in, in B.C. a few years ago. It was with the campaign to overgrow the government. And if everyone's, and maybe their ideals were a little off here, but I think if everyone has a little micro garden, then uh, the world's going to be a better place uh, for sure because there's going to be less of that margin for error when you're driving around in your car, you're making all those phone calls to your buddy. Hey, man, can you find your buddy that can help me out? And all those, because people, that's how people get busted, is cars and cell phones. They're driving around with a car, and they got a bunch of weed in the back, but they got expired tabs, no insurance, whatever, right? And then one thing leads to another, and we're not trained how to deal with the cops um, when, uh, when, when we're confronted in a traffic stop situation. And this would be another great topic, because I do have some first-hand knowledge with this, and maybe we'll have a little guest on, maybe I'd have a guest on to talk more about this. But how do you react when you're stopped for a traffic stop and the cop starts fishing? It goes on a fishing expedition about, you've been smoking weed, you've been doing this, or anything in the car. And then they pull the good cop, bad cop thing where they go, you know, if you just show me what you got now, it'll mean less trouble for you down the road. It's like, dude, is this a traffic stop? Is there a problem with my driving? Please address that problem. And unless you have probable cause, I suggest you shut the hell up. Well, maybe say it a little bit more diplomatically than that. But 
Um, we'll talk more about that on a future show because that's an interesting topic. And I also will point you to the very handy ACLU-issued bust card, I like to call it, where it's a little uh, wallet-sized guide that says what to do with your stop by police, what you have to do. Basically, you have to comply with police requests to a point. What that point is, that's always the moving target. And the Supreme Court sort of slides that bar along through the gray area from time to time, which makes it a little bit confusing because that knowledge doesn't necessarily trickle down to us common folk real easily. But that's one of the reasons I'm really, I, I, I really prefer walking as much as possible, walking in transit, because I can always have a buzz on. I don't ever have to pay attention and, and whatever. So I like it much better that way. Well, right on. That will wrap up a little uh, weed and seed primer for uh, those of you who are a little less initiated. You've been shooting along with Uncle Weed and his wild hijinks. So you never know what's going to happen. So keep open and keep, you know, taking care of yourself, too. You know, it's the other thing that's so important about being a responsible stoner and really keeping yourself out of trouble is, man, keep the hygiene up. Keep looking sharp. Get up and do something every day, man. You know, if you don't work, go volunteer somewhere. Be out and about. Go out and take pictures. Make art. Do something. Because when people see that you find out that you are a smoker and you get shit done every day and that you're lucid and useful and a contributing part to the community, jeez, man, that just all of a sudden everyone goes, man, you know, that's really outstanding. That's really outstanding. So there's my little, uh, my little lecture for you on that topic.